0: Living Hero Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks.
1: Welcome to Living Hero.
0: Today's show is called Solastalgia and Creative Response. It's about the nature of care and the care of nature, about creative and destructive relationships with the planet that is our home. Later in the program, we'll hear a TEDx Sydney talk given by Australian philosopher and professor of sustainability Glenn Albrecht, who coined the term solastalgia and a segment from my 2009 interview with art critic, author, and political blogger Susie Gablick. And I am so pleased to first present an interview with educator, writer, artist, and activist Angela Mano, who for nearly 30 years has explored the connections between personal and planetary healing. Her art is in private collections throughout Europe, the Americas, and the Middle East, and in the permanent fine art collections of NASA and the Smithsonian Institution. In today's program, you'll hear musical segments by Jake Rem and segments of the cinematic orchestras to build a home with Patrick Watson. And now, here's my talk with Angela Mano. As you look back over your life's work, what's really standing out for you
2: right now? My primary Concern has been for many years the health of the earth. And it kind of came about when I first had an experience in hypnotherapy when exploring my spirituality for the first time. And something just welled up inside of me, and I started sobbing and saying, They're destroying the earth. So it was a very deep, intuitive knowing and connection to the earth. And it was at the time when there was a a lot of controversy around nuclear energy, nuclear power. So I started to explore that. And one thing led to another. I started to read about the Gaia hypothesis, which basically says that the earth is a living system, that everything's connected. And it made complete sense to me, you know, that of course, it's all alive.
0: About how long ago did this awakening happen?
2: in the early 80s. So I started to think about, well, how can I have an impact on this, a positive impact? And I was lucky enough to fall into a course that taught how to use thought as a way of creating. And so I learned in this method that thought is creative and attractive and that people create their own worlds through their thoughts either consciously or unconsciously so i started to use those methods and techniques to kind of focus my energy and uh, what was most meaningful to me from that kind of intention that i set i started to create vastly different artwork and i started to meet the most amazing people that answered questions for me about say for instance can humans actually live in harmony with the earth, is it is it actually possible, or are we on a collision course with it? And um, one of the people that I met and actually did an internship with, um, whose name is Anna Edie, and she has a um, her uh, a solar bio shelter called Solviva in Martha's Vineyard, where I learned that basically um, the answer was yes. And I learned through experience that we could actually live. And not create any waste or harm, and uh, grow our food in a beautiful environment. And there was no fossil fuel pollution. Everything was recycled. There were composting toilets. She was producing uh, 200 salad servings a day, and her her home was also built on the same principle. So that was, you know, a very important formative experience for me. How long were you there? About two months, and so I did everything. You know, that's kind of where I, I got my green thumb from, was just working, you know, doing everything from seeding things to um, fertilizing to uh, <laughs> collecting the bunny poop to make <laughs> compost. Yeah, it was a very pivotal point in my life, so I knew from experience that we actually could live in harmony with the planet. Uh-huh.
0: Well, why don't you talk about some of the other primary healing and, and edifying influences
2: the sweat lodge was very, um, very healing. It was sort of a form of prayer that involves the, the elements. It's, it's demanding physically, and it's very humbling, and that was one of the things that helped me get closer to the earth. I would also say that the uh, Buddhist tradition has been very healing in my m- more recent years. I've been doing meditation practices in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. And, of course, everyone knows about mindfulness meditation and just the calming and the breathing and the commitment to touching the refreshing places inside of oneself, not to be pulled back into the past and to regret or fearing about the future. And something else which is, I guess, very important in this work with trying to come to terms with what is happening to the earth, which is to open to suffering and that is not to shoot the second arrow. To shoot the second arrow means that our reaction to the pain actually causes more suffering. So, for instance, you know, someone might step on your foot and you turn around and punch them. <laughs> to be really uh, blunt. But it can be other reactions like shame or revenge or something that just causes more suffering inside of ourselves and in other people. So I started to become involved in that when I was diagnosed with Lyme disease a few years ago, and I just kind of understood that, you know, I might have to live with this for the rest of my life, and what if, you know, this is my permanent state, instead of thinking, well, as soon as I get better, I'll get back to my life, and so mindfulness and meditation practice really helped me be with what was in my life at the time, which was, fatigue, brain fog, all kinds of difficult physical sensations, and um, so And I've kept up with it over the years. And there's also a few other healing techniques in that tradition. One is called touching the earth, which is a practice of self-emptying of notions and attachments and habit energies. Uh, They're prostrations, actually, so it's the use of body and mind in letting go and surrendering resentment and our ideas of happiness in order to be replenished.
0: I wanted to ask you also about your relationship with Thomas Berry and his mm-hmm. teachings.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I met Thomas Berry about 20 years ago. When I met him, we immediately took to each other and I immersed myself in his thinking and his writings. And He was also very supportive of my art. He was extremely generous with so many people, encouraging them to take up their unique role in what he calls the great work. And he was very supportive of the arts in general and felt they had a primary function in bringing into being the ecological age to create a mystique about the natural world and to contribute to cosmology with questions of meaning.
0: Talk about that handout entitled Underlying Assumptions and Background of the Industrial Technozoic age. Take us through those assumptions, because I think it's really powerful what you've
2: done. Okay, well, i um, give you a little context. So the Ecozoic and the Technozoic are, are kind of diametrically opposed, and they follow the Cenozoic period, which is we're at the end of the Cenozoic period now because of the mass extinctions that we're experiencing, that um, the species have been around for the last 65 million years, and humans are causing the extinction. So he proposes different scenarios. One is the ecological or ecozoic age and the other is the technozoic age. Technozoic age basically is characterized by more and more violent means of extracting resources from the earth and controlling nature in general. And so the underlying assumptions begins with the myth of progress that somehow there can be lasting human progress at the expense of the natural world. And, you know, he's always said that the human and the natural world will go into the future together or both perish in the desert. Also, another assumption is anthropocentrism. With the exception of Native American, all of our major religious uh, systems are anthropocentric, meaning that, you know, the human is the center of all things. And we consider only human progress when we think about technology or any kind of advance. And he says that this anthropocentrism is largely consequent on our failure to think of ourselves as a species. So we understand ourselves as nations and ethnic groups, economic groups, sexual orientation, things like that. But we don't think of ourselves as a species. And what we need to do is to transition from that kind of isolation from the rest of the natural world to a biocentric norm of progress. Another assumption that there can be unlimited growth, which, as we know, is is not possible. Any organism that tries to grow unlimited gets shut down somehow. You know, some other force will curtail it because it's not the way of nature. A utilitarian view towards nature, in other words, it's there for our use as opposed to it having intrinsic worth. There's scientific materialism, which has been part of our tradition, starting with the Enlightenment. And
0: Do you happen to have that Francis Bacon quote anywhere nearby that yeah. you had shared with me? I would love it if you could read that as part of this point.
2: Okay, it's actually from Frishtoff uh, Kapper's The Turning Point. So Capper writes, Since Sir Francis Bacon, the goal of science has been knowledge that can be used to dominate and control nature, and today... Both science and technology are used predominantly for purposes that are profoundly anti-ecological. The terms in which Bacon advocated his new empirical method of investigation were not only passionate but often outright vicious. Nature, in his view, had to be, quote, hounded in her wanderings, unquote, bound into service, and made a slave. She was to be, quote, put in constraint, and the aim of the scientist was to, quote, torture nature's secrets from her. It's chilling. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can see, I mean, when you look at mountaintop removal (laughs) or the tar sand strip mining, that is exactly what's going on. Yeah.
0: I so appreciate getting to these underlying assumptions, to the roots, in the mind of these attitudes. So please go right ahead.
2: The definition of the individual human being as a consumer versus being part of and dependent on the whole, and then the notion of social Darwinism.
0: Could you expand upon that a bit?
2: Well, it's basically the survival of the fittest projected onto people that are meant to dominate. And then, um, well, once you have the industrial era, you know, like we started talking about these methods of extreme extraction, you know, which basically started in the uh, late 19th century with automization and the discovery of Petroleum and gigantism, you know, that's another one where um, things are just out of scale. They're they're enormous. It's a way to extract more and more and to produce faster and faster. And one thing that uh, Thomas Berry talks about is the millennial vision of John the Divine, which he describes as the thousand years at the end of the historical process when the great dragon will be chained up. And peace and justice will appear, and the human condition will be decisively surmounted. So there's a a kind of intolerance for, you know, the messiness of human life, and somehow we are going to eradicate all the things that make life precarious and scary by using technology to make our lives a wonder world.
0: These points are rooted in the Bible, in Judeo-Christian modes of thought and looking at the world no
2: well it's really interesting because one of the things that uh, people tend to forget was there was a first commandment before any of the ten commandments and it was in the garden of eden and god told adam to take care of the garden that's the one that we've forgotten. Even the the interpretation of Genesis, you know, where God says go forth and multiply, and it's being looked at now, and you know how things are in terms of ancient texts and and translating, um, that there are often different uh, versions, different translations, and it's more about being a servant, a wise steward, you know, husbandry, not domination. So I think it's been uh, a mistake, and it's been used. It's been used over, you know how religious ideas are used as a way to dominate other cultures. And
0: Yeah, philosophy is used also in different ways by different people. The same philosopher can be drawn exactly. upon to support one's agenda.
2: Another very clear relationship is domination versus healing, the healing relationship, you know. Um, which is mutually enhancing and uh, reciprocal. It's not only uh, Native American, it's also, you know, Quaker. One of their primary testimonies is equality.
0: The people who are in power, who have the structures of government and industry, the currency at their disposal, they kind of like the domination model.
2: They so. definitely don't want to give it up. But the thing is, I think, I think that's why these days are so amazingly exciting. The rally on climate awareness that was in Washington, D.C., oh, it was amazing. The talks, you know, given by Bill McKibben, you know, the, the uh, First Nations women from Canada and Oklahoma. It was so exciting to see the movement, which is probably the majority of people who want peace with this planet, And I think power holders don't give up easily, but important to look at is history and some of the most entrenched institutions that were overturned. We're facing one of those moments again. It's the extractive fossil fuel economy that we're dealing with. The movement has shown its face. I mean, that's one of the great things that Bill McKibben brought to people's attention in his talk on Saturday. was he, he said, a powerful, powerful love for the future has brought us here. The beauty of the world we've been given, and so we know why we fight. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are already suffering, and so we know why we fight. And someone who was incarcerated recently, Tim Christopher, you know, um, he says something to the effect that it's not going to stop this love for the planet and the increasing examples of people standing up for the Earth. It's not going backwards. I have tremendous hope.
0: Would you talk a bit about your own activism? There are so many issues, GMOs and big pharma, big agra. Yep. Could you right. talk about the things that you have chosen to support and get behind and what you're doing now?
2: My activism has focused mostly on opposing the violence against nature and extreme extraction, which includes um, hydraulic fracturing, but also genetic engineering and deep water drilling, mountaintop removal, and uh, tar sand strip mining, and also election fraud. But that may be for another (laughs) conversation, because that really is kind of like determines how our decisions are made, and I think they've been compromised at this point. But fracking, it's important for New York State, which is where I live. And there's a pipeline, actually, that they want to put in um, just about uh, six or eight blocks from my apartment in New York City to bring in natural gas from the Marcellus Shale which will likely be radioactive because the Marsella shale is a very old shale formation and it has higher radon levels than most of the other shale formations in the country. So right now, a group called Sane Energy Project is conducting its second radon test so we can get a, a baseline in the city of the levels of radon. You know, radon is one of the leading causes of lung cancer. Fracking is wrong in every direction because it's a fossil fuel. We need to be going towards wind, water, and solar. It's methane, which is a far worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. It irrevocably poisons and depletes our water. We're going into a period of diminishing water tables. It pollutes the air. During the drilling process, volatile organic compounds mix and uh, nitrogen oxide mixes with sunlight and creates ground-level ozone, and that actually destroys lung tissue and it destroys the, the parts inside leaves that uh, photosynthesize. So it you know by every measure it's it's wrong. It destroys livestock, farmland, human health, and uh, we're amazingly lucky in New York. I think we're the only well, except for Vermont, the only state that still has uh, a ban and we're fighting to keep a ban in place very Mm -hmm. strongly and there's a lot of very big forces trying to overturn that this pipeline that's going in is uh, i think it's going to be a 32 inch pipeline it's 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 overkill for for new york city so uh, i think about 80 percent of it is is destined for export so it's not really about you know energy independence
0: it's about making Um, money
2: yeah exactly but i have to say you know i in the last few years, part of my um, optimism has to do with the growth of um, nonviolent uh, direct action. And uh, there are some young people from Occupy Wall Street who came down and formed another group called Occupy the Pipeline who were, who were climbing all over the bulldozers you know, and got arrested and actually you know, stopped them for a while, you know, the excavation to build the pipeline. And so, you know, like Tim DeChristopher said, it's not going to stop. It's going to escalate because people are starting to wake up, and it's terribly exciting. I mean, there's a Cornell study by Jacobson and DeLucci that states that 100% of the world's energy can be produced by wind, water, and solar by 2030.
0: May it be so.
2: Yes, it's in a Scientific American um, article called A Path to Sustainability by 2030. You know, this is the type of thing that offers hope. This is the type of thing I think that artists actually could be involved with to bring awareness to, to the kind of stuff that's going on now.
0: How would you define the artist's role in yeah. society?
2: I love this question because, you know, I've, I've thought about it um, for a long time, and one of the quotes that I like uh, is by our uh, friend Susie Gablick, the author and art critic, who wrote a long time ago, if art has a social function, it is perhaps to show humanity is optimal parameters. We will determine which future we create by the views and images we hold now, and that sustain me for a long time, you know, like be the change you want to see, like embodying the kind of lifestyle that you think would be healing to the rest of the life systems sharing the planet with us. And now I've actually been focusing on something that Thomas Berry wrote in his book, The Great Work, which applies to everyone, but I apply it to artists. He says, we all have our particular work. Some of us are teachers, some of us are healers, some of us are farming We have a variety of occupations, but besides the particular work we do and the particular lives we lead, we have a great work that everyone is involved with and no one is exempt from. And the great work, he says, before us is the task of moving modern industrial civilization from its present devastating influence on the earth to a more benign mode of presence. And he says it's not a role that we've chosen. We were somehow chosen by some power beyond ourselves for this historic task. So we find ourselves in this era right now. So everyone is involved in it somehow. And so when I think about how the artists can be involved in this, you know, a very uh, traditional role is the prophetic role. And what does that mean? The two most important characteristics of um, the prophetic ministry are critique and hope. And um, I, I tend to like to do both because um, just to critique isn't by my nature something that I like to do. I like to offer hope. I did a series called Conscious Evolution, The World at One that's now on the Smithsonian, and that body of work really, again, was looking at our place, our role on the planet and, uh, you know, our ability and responsibility for the condition of the planet. These images also come with handwritten quotes on the bottom of each one, and one that is very moving um, is called "Discovering Fire," and it says, "Someday, after we have mastered the wind, the tides, and gravity, we will harness the energies of love, and then, for the second time in history, man will have discovered fire." Which is a quote by Teilhard de Chardin, and I do think it's about love. It's just like what um, Bill McKibben had to say: "It's like we're here because we love this earth, and we love the future." And those are the, you know, the motivating factors, I think, when I create my work. There's another uh, series called All My Relations, which really depicts how humans are embedded in the cosmos and with the plant world and the animal kingdom, and, you know, depicts a kind of evolution out of the primordial flaring forth, as they call it in the news story, of hydrogen atoms, you know, that evolve into birds and rocks and songs and and everything that we hold dear.
0: I just want to add that the conscious evolution series has many images of seeing the earth from space and mm-hmm. being an astronaut floating in space. It, in a sense your art in both series that you've mentioned so far, they are antidotes to the anthropo I can never say that word. <laughs> Anthropocentrism.
2: But you know what's funny? There are so many images of people in in this series but it's always within the context of the larger universe and the earth system. It's about our relationship rather than our disconnection. I think people finally get it, that we're completely dependent on the life systems that support us. There's even a very interesting um, movement called the Environmental Human Rights Movement. It's, you by an ecologist by the name of Sandra Steingraber, who also is a cancer survivor, and she's done a lot of research about the environmental causes of cancer. And so what we're seeing is that if you have a polluted environment, you're going to have sick people. You know, it's kind of a new way of looking at things, because in the past, oh, you know, you're a tree hugger, and there was a way to denigrate people who had a sensitivity to the living world because they were somehow not concerned with the human. And now we're concerned with it all because they're inseparable. So, um,
0: so how would you define wisdom in our time?
2: Oh, um, that's a great question. Um, for me, wisdom is, it's a felt sense. It's almost an aesthetic or a kinesthetic sense of what's good for the body for humanity and for life, it carries with it the ability to make decisions and to discern and evaluate. So, a lot of times, somebody will parade, you know, a new idea. You know, they've done a new re- a new study and they say it's good to eat a lot of fat, you know, or <laughs> some absurd thing. And so, how do you wade through all of the the supposed, you know, empirical data? And I think it's by this wisdom that is deeper than the so-called facts, because facts can be manipulated. It has to do with a felt sense of the right order of things in wisdom. So the argument between solar and nuclear, for instance. The aesthetic consideration is, is it really aesthetic to create the conditions of the sun on the surface of the earth? Or is it more aesthetic to utilize the power of the sun from a safe 93 million miles away?
1: this is the place for
0: take a break now, and then we'll be back for the completion of this interview with artist, educator, writer, and activist Angela Mano. We'll hear from the philosopher and researcher Glenn Albrecht from Australia, and a few words from the great Susie Gablik. right after these important messages. Stay right here. Living Hero Conversations with Living Luminaries and
1: Mavericks.
0: Welcome back to Living Hero Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. We are here each week to talk with those local, regional, national, and international artists, researchers, activists, authors healers, wisdom figures, and heroic individuals of all kinds who are working for the greater good. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I want you to explore and celebrate with me what it means to be a living hero in our times. We are drawing the connections between psyche and society, between our innermost experience and the large-scale geopolitical reality we all share— We are looking at what conscientious individuals and groups are doing to take a more holistic view and to usher in more wholesome ways of living and structuring societies. So get the big picture, draw connections, repair neural synapses with interviews, essays, music, spoken word, audio collages, panel discussions, listener participation, this is independently produced, listener supported radio created in the public interest. We're back with Solastalgia and Creative Response, and the rest of the interview with artist, educator, activist, and writer, Angela Mano.
2: So, the argument between solar and nuclear, for instance, is it really aesthetic to create the conditions of the sun on the surface of the earth? Or is it more aesthetic to utilizing the power of the sun from a safe 93 million miles away?
0: What do you think it's going to take?
2: Well, I mean, what it's going to take is a critical mass of people, you know, who are willing to make the changes politically through nonviolent direct action, through lifestyle changes. And I just want to offer some more hope that that is actually what's going on right now. There's a fantastic book that I, you know, I just use as my Bible. It's called Doing Democracy, and it actually maps successful social movements and it breaks them down into seven stages and uh, so you know the first one is normal times you know things as usual then um, you know there's a perception of something is wrong then there is some kind of um, precipitating cause makes the movement take off after that there's a perception of failure Uh, you move on to a point in which the majority public opinion is on your side and then eventually to success. So that's, you know, that's the kind of arc that we're traveling right now. And if I would guess, I think we're at stage number four, which is um, called takeoff. And I think that was exemplified by what happened in Washington with uh, some say 50,000 people who were there at the Climate Awareness.
0: Who wrote that book, Doing Democracy?
2: Oh, it's um, by uh, Bill Moyer, not to be confused with Bill Moyer's. Bill Moyer had a primary role in Martin Luther King's campaigns, and he actually looks into several successful social movements, including the U.S. Civil Rights Movement, the anti-nuclear energy movement, the gay and lesbian movement, breast cancer social movement, globalization movement. He, he actually breaks it down. It's wonderful. And so, you know, when we get to these points where we're just feeling, oh, it's not working, it's actually part of that arc is incredibly important, that we know that um, a healthy system is a system that has diverse elements in it. One thing I really like, I call it intergenerational responsibility or temporal integrity, so that when you're making decisions that you actually consider the impact on future generations. Concepts of beauty and balance.
0: You know, also what I'm thinking as you speak these values is just about sensitivity You know, this is something that I was talking about in a recent show, but Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that I think especially is relevant to bring up again in speaking with a fellow artist, that the meaning of the word aesthetic is Mm -hmm. to be sensitive, particularly sensitive to beauty, Mm. uh, including natural beauty. Mm -hmm. So uh, these sensitivities are perhaps sometimes rare when we speak of desensitization of our current society, anesthetizing and so Mm -hmm. on, that artists have somehow or other managed to retain their sensitivity and this is why I happen to think they should be listened to and viewed with greater respect and more frequently than, um, than they actually are. They're not brought to the forums, brought into the conversation enough, mm-hmm. in, in my view.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I guess it's upon artists who work in that vein to create their own, say like documentary filmmakers, have made an incredible contribution I mean, one of the ones that, you know, galvanized the entire world was An Inconvenient Truth. You know, Gasland was another one. There's a new one that just came out called Bitter 17 about Tim Christopher that's making the uh, circuit now in festivals. And, you know, film and uh, broadcast, like what you're doing, I mean, they're ways to grab people's attention, you know, maybe on their iPods and little gadgets that I <laughs> that I don't have.
0: <laughs> uh-huh, maybe they're... Um, I- heard or read that you were really undergoing another change in mm-hmm. your artwork. Could mm-hmm. you speak a little bit about what you're doing?
2: Yes. Uh, I'm I'm kind of wrapping up, not a series, but one of the things that I do, which is to create the icons of the Earth uh, from space in the same method of materials that Byzantine Russian icons are done in, which is a practice that I've kept up with for a very long time. But I'm also developing a new series And what I'm doing is looking more at my personal history and my inner ecology and linking it to my previous expression and concerns about the fate of the Earth. The series is called Coming Home, and it's an installation of three-dimensional works based on dream imagery plus narrative, poetry, collage, archival photos, and personal artifacts. It's a kind of visual memoir and it traces my personal search for belonging from some of the woundedness in my own life from a a kind of a deep homesickness that um, I've had throughout my life and looking at the various events in my life that led to that kind of alienation and um, then finding my place and a sense of home in the planet and now most recently um, to finding home now in my body and my mind and the present moment, you know, being able to be in those places and feel at home.
0: That was Angela Mano. And now we're going to hear a strongly related presentation by Australian philosopher, researcher, and professor, the very sensitive and sensible Glenn Albrecht. He is inventing some of the new language that we need to describe the emotional circumstances that we find ourselves in, in a world in which so many cherished and irreplaceable habitats are being destroyed against our will.
3: I think there's a drama going on And this drama has been going on since the year DOT. This relationship we have between our home at all scales, from the image that you have of a tree outside your bedroom window all the way through to the planet that we call our home. There's a drama going on between the forces that are attempting to create and the forces that are attempting to destroy. And this is a very old drama. And I want to give this old drama some new ideas, some new thoughts. And this is a, a good forum to test them out. Tipping points in the mind. We talk about tipping points in climate change and other areas of uh, large-scale ecosystem assessment. But when in, uh, w- what's really happening is that within our own minds, there are tipping points about these forces of uh, destruction and forces of creation going on all the time. And if we're going to solve many of these globally significant environmental problems, if we're going to solve them at national or even local levels, we're going to have to sort out what's going on in our heads. Kate McDowell has uh, produced this artwork and it was featured in a New York Times Magazine article on eco-psychology earlier this year. And this idea that there may be a koala sitting inside our heads uh, asking questions of us about urban growth, urban development, pushing into koala habitat, Where are koalas going? That's symbolic of the stress, the tensions that are going on within us all of the time. And this drama is unfolding in the 21st century at a pace and scale that we've never seen before. We now have globally significant factors driving change on this planet. In the past, as a uh, patch disturbing species, we've been able to disturb a patch and move on. Now the patch is the whole planet. And although some of us are thinking about moving on to other planets, I think right now in our heads we're thinking about, let's sort this one out first. The old dramas. I believe we have a bishop in the audience who's dealt with heaven and hell. Hell is one of those concepts that's really interesting. At least it's earthbound. We are in the earth and we're burning because of the sins that we've committed uh, for some reason. Heaven's more difficult to understand. It's somehow beyond this earth. Uh, and this otherworldliness is a place where uh, redemption is gained and where human beings can have uh, sin alleviated. However, it's this earth right here and now where we have a major issue and it's this earth where we have to develop our concepts and our ideas to help tip the tipping point towards the creativity, uh, the building rather than allow us to fall apart into some sort of chaos and destruction. We have lots of concepts in our language that help us do this. Love and strife are in the ancient Greek worlds uh, forces that are driving us one way or the other. Love has been appropriated by the advertising world so it's no longer all that useful in sorting out these cosmic dramas between uh, the forces of good and the forces of evil. Good and evil themselves have been appropriated by all sorts of traditions, uh, many of which use good and evil interchangeably. The, uh, the fight between good and evil is now connected to global political ideologies as well. Uh, and we talk about the end of history and those sorts of things. So another drama that's important, but one that we no longer find all that useful. Freud talked about Eros and Thanatos, uh, the life-creating and the death-creating forces. Uh, Freud himself didn't talk about thanatos all that much, and it doesn't seem to be a word that's caught on much in the language. We don't analyze the destruction of society or ecosystems using the concept of thanatos. A very useful addition was biophilia from the famous biologist E.O. Wilson. Biophilia Wilson defined as almost an instinctual genetically based affiliation uh, and attraction towards other life forms. Necrophilia by contrast is the attraction towards those forces which create death and destruction. Biophilia I'd love it to be a a major factor in human affairs in the early 21st century. But if it's hardwired it must be weak because the forces that are destroying seem to be far outweighing the biophilia, the forces which are hardwired in us to create. So it looks like we need something else. We need some culturally uh, acquired or culturally transmitted force, power, concept which is going to do more than what biophilia is doing right now. So this drama that's going on in your heads can end in tragedy. Cobb in 1966 Uh, presented us with the apocalypse after perhaps the nuclear Armageddon. They were the issues that in the 60s were really uh, important uh, in uh, maintaining our attention on this big drama that's going on between the forces of creation and destruction. So I'm interested in this relationship between humans, their built environment, the natural environment and their psychological states. And it's very interesting that there are very few concepts in the English language that enable us to think about these relationships. They're vital. Our relationship to our home environment is one of the most important relationships that we have in our whole existence, and yet our language is somewhat impoverished when it comes to explaining that relationship, particularly when it's threatened. So I've started to develop a typology of what I call psychoterratic diseases. So psychoterratic, it's not in the dictionary, but it's earth-related mental health issues. So if your home environment is being violated, desolated, uh, or in some way altered that you find negative or distressing, then it falls into a psychoterratic category. Equally, I could come up with a typology of psychoterratic disorders that are, uh, uh, not disorders, uh, uh, things that are actually very positive. And so the, the rest of my talk will look at this drama between these forces of creation and the forces of destruction through this concept of psychotyratic diseases. So we have now, under global climate change and global development forces, anxiety about what's happening. So we can talk about eco-anxiety as a first level response to the stressors that are happening to our, uh, our natural environment and, uh, and loved built environments. Richard Louve talks about nature deficit disorder in our children. I think about that same problem as uh, artifact overload disorder in adults who are so uh, infatuated with technology and artifacts that they fail to take their children into the woods or into nature. Eco-paralysis is when you've got so much information coming in about the negatives about the environment that there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Most of you know that changing the light bulbs is not sufficient to address the problem of global warming. I've created the concept of solostalgia, which I'll define and say something more about shortly, but it is a new form of psychoterratic disease, or newly defined, but one that I think humans have experienced uh, for a great deal of their history. The concept of nostalgia is a psychoterratic concept. When it was created, it meant the kind of homesickness and melancholia that people feel when they're absent from home and wish to return so particularly afflicted uh, soldiers fighting on foreign shores. These soldiers would become homesick. The only cure for nostalgia was to send them back home again, to repatriate them. And this repatriation would be part of the healing process. They would be healed and then sent back to the front only to be killed. So eco-nostalgia in the 21st century will be where our uh, Arctic landscape, for example, just disappears and people who have been away and then come back to it find that it's no longer there. The melting of the permafrost and that sort of thing. And global dread, this issue that uh, when you wake up in the morning and hear Radio National telling you that there's uh, a giant iceberg that's just fallen off the uh, Antarctic uh, landmass. It's going to raise the sea level by four meters and uh, cause massive problems worldwide. It's the sort of feeling that you have when the news is all bad. So the new drama is between what I call solastalgia, this idea that you lose solace in your home environment. You feel desolated about the loss of a loved home environment. You feel isolated and powerless in the face of forces that are creating this kind of destruction. What sort of forces? Well, with my colleagues Linda Connor, who's Professor of Anthropology at Sydney University, and Nick Higginbotham, who's Associate Professor of Social Psychology at Newcastle University, we've engaged in study of people who have been affected by large-scale mining in the Upper Hunter and power station fallout. so that's one sort of an, of an example. Others I've had people ask me, can they study their solastalgia uh, with wind turbines on the Flurio Peninsula in South Australia, peri-urban chicken farms on the outskirts of Brisbane, airport noise around Sydney, These people are all experiencing change to their environment that they find negative. It's a lived experience of that change, it's not nostalgia. And solophilia has been created by me this year to really describe the opposite of solastalgia, a new philia that's needed in our culture and our politics to return solace, to give us a sense of the unity or the solidarity that's needed to oppose the forces that are destroying life and life processes. So, solostalgia, the short definition, is the homesickness you have when you're still at home. It's an emplaced feeling, you feel dislocated, but you haven't gone anywhere. If you've got a massive industry like open-cut coal mining in the Upper Hunter, it literally undermines your territory, your space, your home, and takes it away. If you're experiencing the leading edge of climate change, you're also having uh, your home environment move away from you. You've gone nowhere. You've been perfectly good, but your home's packed up and gone somewhere else. It's heading south if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's heading north if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Alan Chawner and I went up in a helicopter in 2008 and had a look at the transformation of the Upper Hunter, and it's being transformed bucket load by bucket load from a place that was once called the Tuscany of the South to a massive over 500 square kilometres open cut coal mine feeding the power stations of the Upper Hunter and delivering the energy that we all enjoy. Some of the biggest machines in the world transform the landscape in a, at a scale and at a pace that is unbelievable unless you take the time to go up there and have a look. The research team has interviewed people who live next door to these mines. That's Rix's Creek and this woman who was interviewed, a woman in her 70s, I won't read it out, but she was expressing her most profound distress at what was happening to her home environment. And she said she was a real mess. And this is something that came across often in the interviews, that people were extremely emotional about the fact that their loved home environment was being destroyed by forces that they had no control over. So in order to defeat that kind of solostalgia, in order to turn it around, we need a new meme. And the meme I've created is solophilia. Solophilia is the love of the totality of our place relationships and a willingness to accept in solidarity, and in affiliation with others, the political responsibility for the health of our home, the earth. And it could be at smaller scales as well. So we have this situation where he, this drama that's going on in your head, at least I think it is, is either going to end in tragedy or triumph. We could have a pandemic of solastalgia as the climate gets trashed. We could have a pandemic of solostalgia as the forces of development continue to overtake every square uh, meter of the earth. Or we could have a pandemic of solophilia, where the the love of the earth, the solidarity that can come out between human beings to save it, is something that uh, will constitute a triumph.
0: have a few minutes of wisdom from a living hero of the art world, Susie Gablik. You'll see.
4: Art has a lot to offer, but more in terms of the artist as a kind of role model. And I think the role model of the artist that has developed since modernism as the lone individual Creating uh, alone in the studio, which has now been dramatically altered, I might say, but which led ultimately to the rise of an art that basically was homeless because these objects that were created in studios by single individuals had no place to go, and out of that came a sort of artificial habitat as i now choose to describe it known as the art world or the art scene of professionals and ultimately it kind of grew a world of artists that are very egocentrically concerned with careers and making it and you know how famous they can be and how much money they can get for their works and who's going to show them and who's going to review them and essentially i found this world after a point not very interesting on the other hand there seems to have been an alternative world almost like a shadow art world of people who chose to go another direction in in Marilyn Ferguson's sense, of the Aquarian age of people who broke with the paradigm that's out there, which still reigns in our culture for art, which is the the paradigm that I now call the paradigm of dead objects. And they tried to make another kind of art that is more involved with people with, well, Let's see, I even wrote down a quote here that is from myself. Art should transcend the distanced formality of aesthetics and dare to respond to the cries of the world. And I do think that there are many artists doing that. And for me, that is the true aesthetic response to the world, which is trying to improve or help or participate in rather than, you know, be a professional career maker according to specifications that someone else has laid out in a patriarchal capitalistic culture.
0: For this episode of Living Hero, glad you were right here with us. Tune in each week, Saturday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern at 91.1 in Plainfield and 91.7 in Hardwick in North Central, Vermont, and streaming live wherever you are at WGDR.org. Podcasts are available at livinghero.com, on iTunes, and around the web. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Leave your comments on the podcast page at livinghero.com. This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Thank you for listening. Be well and see you right here next time.